Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In our politically correct and ever fearful to offend culture, sin is a word that does not get used all that often. At times in our so-called enlightened society, sin is ignored, dismissed, overlooked, excused, denied, and in many segments it's even celebrated as being good and beneficial. Yet there are certain things from which mankind cannot escape. The two most commonly spoken of, of course, are death and taxes. But one cannot escape sin either. For as long as there is death, there is also sin. Ezekiel wrote, For every living soul belongs to me, the Father as well as the Son. Both alike belong to me. The soul who sins is the one who will die. So just as one cannot escape death, one cannot escape sin either. Jesus goes on to explain just why. Sin begins in our hearts. And our hearts harbor murder, insults, anger, jealousy, lust, selfishness, deception, and arrogance. As today's gospel lesson begins, we're still at the opening section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's the first of the five great discourses found in Matthew's gospel account. If you've not taken the time to read it over lately, or perhaps ever, I'd strongly recommend it. Better yet, if you're not too lazy or too busy, too distracted or too self-righteous or too intellectually arrogant to go to Sunday school anymore, I might strongly encourage you to come over to Bible study on Sunday mornings. We're going through Matthew's Gospel. I can guarantee that it's a far better read and far better for you than anything you'll find on Yahoo News or in the American Statesman or even in the Wall Street Journal. Just before this lesson, Jesus had reminded the people that in order for them to get into the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness had to be greater than the greatest righteousness ever generated by man. By telling them that their righteousness had to exceed that of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus wanted his hearers to understand that their own righteousness could not save them. Now they all knew that they couldn't even begin to approach the righteousness that they observed in the scribes and the Pharisees who had it down to a real exact science. But the righteousness which they saw on the outward surface there was a false one. For in parsing and manipulating and slicing and dicing and otherwise rationalizing all the commandments that God had given into a precise quantitative system, they'd lost sight of the law's most important purpose. It had been codified and elaborated upon, redefined into something that human reason actually believed was achievable. And even if it couldn't be kept perfectly well, these leaders were certainly in the upper percentiles of the population, 
So they were certain that they met the grade. Yet Jesus raises the bar on the law, very clearly turning up the heat until even the most self-righteous Jew could feel the flames of hell singeing the bottom of his tasseled robe. For to make the law a humanly achievable code, these religious leaders taught that things like only the outward actual act of murdering someone was a sin. Yet just as Luther would come to understand and explain later, 15 centuries later in the small catechism, Jesus explains here that narrowing down the law to simply the avoidance of outward acts against God and neighbor doesn't work. Over and over again in this text we hear him say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's not that Jesus is overriding or rewriting or changing the great commandments given to God's people through Moses or any of the other commandments given to Adam or to Noah, to Abraham or to David or to anyone else. God is never inconsistent. He doesn't make mistakes and have to go back and have a do-over to fix what he has given us in his word. Rather, he who is the word made flesh the very embodiment of both law and gospel, he is showing here how the spirit and the intent of the law can be lost. The recognition of the impossibility of making one's self righteous in the eyes of God, the fear of knowing that one is condemned to eternal punishment apart from his grace, the desperation of seeking and appealing to the creator, Lord, and king of all things for his mercy, All these had faded to be mere shadows of what they are and what they should be. Lest any of us thinks that we can keep the commandments even a little, listen to what the true keeper of commandments and the keeper of your souls had to say. First, murder begins with anger in the heart and can soon lead to hateful words. To call someone raka was to accuse them of being stupid, literally attacked in the head. Labeling them a fool or a moron not only insulted their intelligence, but their very character. Contentiousness with others for selfish gain is also warned against in verses 23 and 24. There is presented a very specific example of a disagreement, but it's one that is not a minor matter. It's bad enough that it is brought to court in verse 25. But Jesus is saying that compromise is better than prison. In our spiritual case, going even further is essential. Complete admission of our sinfulness, total surrender of our entire being to God is better than condemnation to hell for eternity. Verse 26 speaks of such eternal imprisonment. And none in Jesus' day could completely pay their debt. And nor can we. Now you've heard it said in the secular sense, actions speak louder than words. That is quite true, but the reality is that our hearts silently scream out accusations and insults and lies. And they inflict visible slaps and kicks and punches long before our mouths speak or our hands act. Sin begins in the heart. And our Lord looks into our hearts. He knows 
all of our thoughts. Now, we can be very thankful that our legal system does not punish us for the secret crimes and sins that are buried in our hearts. But this does not excuse us. God looks and God knows. In complete spirit-led candor and frankness, we have to admit that we are murderers. It's an age-old sin. Brother hating brother. Sinful murder stewing and simmering and sometimes even boiling up in one's heart. Cain kills Abel. Esau comforts himself by plotting the death of his brother Jacob. And we are no different. In his first epistle, St. John wrote this, Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. So we cannot deny or dismiss, ignore or excuse or minimize what is in our hearts. For what we find there is sin. And yes, that sin begins in our hearts. Sadly, though, it does not always stay there, does it? Sin also rears its ugly head in wicked words. How often have we blurted out words that were wrong, spiteful, and downright evil? These words of hatred were and do mean harm to our neighbor. And once that word escapes our hearts and then our lips, it cannot simply be taken back. Now, we can retract and we can backpedal and we can even apologize all that we want to. But the damage has been done. Our gracious God gives us divine advice, though, speaking through the epistle of St. James. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And so we ought to think before we speak and pray the thoughts that God gives you and let them supersede your own. Likewise, murder does not take a knife or a gun, a rope or some other deadly instrument. Murder begins with that hatred and that anger in our hearts. And it is oh so very hard to escape. For as long as we live and as long as we breathe, we have a beating heart that pumps lots more than blood. The heart also pulses with poison, pondering murderous threats. Thank God that we do not need to depend on our own righteousness to save us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, St. Paul tells us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Our hearts harbor all sorts of other evil thoughts too, some of which Jesus lists in the remaining verses. Lust, coveting, adultery, falsehood, and deception. In verse 27, Jesus repeats that wrong thought process that the crowd continued to hold on to, as did their religious leaders. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now the Pharisees taught that only the action of adultery was sin. But Jesus taught that this sin too begins in the heart. It is lust in the heart that causes the eye to wander and then to continue to look and to sin as the imaginings of what might happen grow stronger and more vivid. 
Think of King David. Walking on the roof of his palace, David sees Bathsheba bathing. He thinks she is beautiful, and this is far more than just the appreciation of God's creative power. David covets what is not his. And even before he violates another man's wife, he has already violated his vocations of husband, of king, and most especially his vocation as believer. Bathsheba is brought to his bed, and when the evidence of his sin is about to become all too apparent, David has her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. Just one lingering look leads to an act of adultery and then to murder. Jesus then stresses just how severe is the soul-destroying nature of sin in the heart. It is so damaging and so damning, he says, that one should prefer to pluck out one's eye or cut off one's hand rather than to sin. Does Jesus teach mutilation then? Is he advocating some sort of new and more radical mortification of the flesh as is mistakenly practiced by the falsely pious? No. Jesus loves and he values our bodies. For the Son actively participated in the creation of humanity in all things. What's more, he came to us in human flesh to redeem and to save both our bodies and our souls. And he will raise our bodies on the last day to a a restored, a, a glorified state to live in perfection forever. He just wants us to understand how horribly distorting and disfiguring sin is to our well-being. But the new man or the new woman in Christ is able by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit to control the eye, to control the hand, as well as the heart. God alone gives us this strength. If and only if all else fails, then such drastic steps might be taken to save one from being eternally punished. But Jesus has already taken the drastic steps for us. He offered up his own body to be disfigured, beaten with fists, whipped savagely, gouged with a thorny crown, punctured with coarse nails, and finally lanced with a spear. Jesus wants us to remember that adultery does not mean that one actually has to climb into another's bed to commit this sin. For all sin begins in the heart. Our society today promotes adultery at every possible opportunity and seemingly in every possible variation. Sex certainly sells. The adultery that lies dormant in the heart can very easily be awakened and can lead to a quick immoral downfall for the unsuspecting soul. There is truly eternal danger and temptation around us constantly. Yet we are warned, just as St. Paul warned the Corinthians... Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Scripture reminds us, though, that God has provided many ways for us to overcome the sin in our hearts. The most important of these, the only one that truly has lasting value, of course, is Christ Jesus. But God also has the power for us to overcome any and every addiction, temptation, or inclination that may affect us. With Christ and with the Spirit of God on our side, all things are possible. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. 
Potiphar's wife tempted him time and time again to sleep with her. And yet he refused over and over. Joseph answered this temptress by saying, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Finally, Joseph even had to leave his cloak as he fled from sin. And so we are to be led also by the Spirit to flee from all sin. And to pray to God that He continues to make His presence known to us whenever temptation strikes. Paul wrote this to the Colossians. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The desires that oppose God have already been killed by God. In fact, Jesus took them to the cross and buried them in the tomb for us. Remember always that the world around us is not much concerned with sin except perhaps the sins of others and how they affect us. But by God's free and undeserved grace, the believer has been made a child of God. We are no longer our own because we have been bought at a price, the price of Christ's blood. By faith, we now know, we believe, and we trust in the promises of God. We are reminded how the righteousness of Christ covers all of our sins. This gives each of us the ultimate motivation to turn away from sin, to put off our former way of life. We were, therefore, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Christ buried our sins so that we might arise as new creatures. Yes, temptations abound, Sin is alive and well and all around us. Though many try to deny and dismiss, to ignore and to excuse sin, sin infects and sin affects all mankind. And it all begins in our heart. If we look at our hearts honestly, we discover that lurking there is hatred and anger, which is murder. Deep down and hidden within us is lust and coveting, which is adultery and idolatry. Yet our gracious God gives us the strength and the encouragement to resist and to flee. God also gives us the privilege and the opportunity to look to Him in worship and in praise, just as we are instructed. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, or praiseworthy, think about such things. Are you troubled with sin, afflicted with a constant and recurring temptation? Think on these godly things listed by Paul, that which is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Those can only mean Jesus, or that which Jesus has created, has given, has said, or has done, God will give you the strength for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.